Get 0% interest for 48 months on any replacement project right now at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Our experts complete the installation with no hassle or mess, leaving only perfect results. Schedule your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at The Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you with us. Okay, Mike Spaulding, before you leave, if if you want a, an interesting way to watch a Packers game, um, do it at the Las Vegas airport. So what, what happened is I was in Las Vegas for a couple days. We were coming back yesterday morning, and of course they were playing in London, so it was early. So by the time we get to the airport, get through TSA, the flight was like at 10.30 or something like that. So we're walking to the, the gate, and we find a, a bar and sit down. So watch the fourth quarter. So And since it was a flight to Milwaukee, there were a lot of Packers fans around. So when I sat down, it was the end of the third quarter. It was like 20 to 10, I think, maybe 20 to 13. So you're, you're watching this, and there's no sound on. So you're just kind of like watching the game, and you're watching the game, and you're watching Aaron Rodgers throw incomplete pass after incomplete pass, and you're watching the defense get shredded over and over again. And then the, the highlight, I think, was at, at the end of the— is they're driving for what would have been at least a game-tying touchdown— third and two on their six-yard line or whatever, the entire crowd, I'm telling you, everybody in the bar is yelling three words, run the ball, run the ball. And, of course, Aaron Rodgers drops back to throw and throws the ball pretty much into the face of a New York defensive lineman. The ball almost gets intercepted, but okay, they got fourth down and two. You supposedly have one of the best running games in the league. Everybody in the bar, run the ball. And he throws another pass that gets knocked down. Needless to say, unhappy people walking out wondering whether this was Rogers making bad decisions or the coach making bad decisions, but not a happy group. I can imagine not. And it's a good thing you watched it at a bar. I'm assuming you had an adult beverage while you watched. Well, actually, that's the worst. I'm sitting with a hot dog and a Diet Coke. That's because it's 10, it's, it is 10 o'clock in the morning. I understand it's Las Vegas, but I'm coming back. It was going to be a long day. But it was. But I'm telling you, the entire crowd, yeah. I mean, it's run because it was, it was all Packers fans. Because, again, we were right by the gate where the Milwaukee flight was leaving. Run the ball. Run the ball. And you're just watching the same old Aaron Rodgers just chucking balls and um, missing receivers. And none of those were really close. If you're thinking about the close. sequence that I'm thinking about, not not even close. And it was like an eight-second drive, right? right? It the was just the re- three are out. We're going to throw like it, it reminded me of like w- th- that was the one before the drive that they didn't run the ball at the end. Yeah. But yeah, it's just like three and out. We just It reminded me of kind of like Sandlot football where I'm going to see how far I can throw the ball. You guys run as far as you can and I'm just going to chuck it. It was uh, a really poor sequence. Well, especially when you can look over on the sideline and see like Rashawn Gary was literally like leaning over wheezing because they just went on what, like a 13 play 90 yard drive or whatever it was. Yeah. You would have thought they would have at least run a couple times just to give their guys maybe a breather because in that next drive, they got shredded again for 15 plays. But but then again, then it's at the end of the game. You're behind by seven. You're on the six yard line. You got third and two. You got two chances to get one, two yards. You've got arguably two of the best backs in the league, and you don't do it. Well, it was, especially when, I don't know if this, the sound was on at the bar you were at, but no. but watching Packers games on TV the past couple of weeks, the new uh, comment du jour for the announcers to make is how the Packers play with two running backs on the field at the same time, and they keep saying, well, Dylan, Rogers, and Jones are their three best players, so they want all three of them on the field, and it's a really tough watch when, as you mentioned, 
They have a third and two at the goal line, almost the goal line, and they don't use two out of those three quote-unquote best players. I think that added on to the, the angst. All I know is the entire crowd in the bar, it was like, okay, run the ball. Yeah, at least run give it a the shot ball. or play action or something. Run the ball. <laughs> it was that simple. So that was that's how I watched the end of the, the Green Bay game, and I, I keep hearing how wonderful the defense is. Well, I guess it's, it's early. You know, you never know, but um, tough way to watch the game. Speaking of Las Vegas... All right, this is where I want to start the program off. I, I almost watched a fist fight on the airplane yesterday, and it's one of these interesting things that raises a question of etiquette, and I thought I would discuss it with you. Okay, so here's the deal. We're flying back on Southwest, right? And Southwest is open seating. If you've never flown on Southwest, what happens is you, you, get, you get an assignment. You don't get an assigned seat. You get an assignment that lets you get on the plane, and then you can sit wherever you want. And there's, there's three groups. There's like A- it's actually, there's like 60 A seats. So it's like A1 to 60, and then it's B1 to 60, and it's C1 to 60, okay? And this was a full flight. They kept saying it was a full flight. So what happens is if you're in the A group, you, you get on, you get to choose your seats first. In general, the people who are in the A group pay for the privilege of doing that. You can pay to upgrade to get A1 to 15, or you can do what they call early bird check-in, which is like 20 bucks extra that will normally get you in the A group or the beginning of the B group. That's kind of how it works. On the other hand, if you decide not to do that and you don't have any of these special things, you're probably going to be at the end of the B group or at the C group, which means by the time you get on the C group, most of the aisle seats and a lot of the window seats are going to be taken. So you're pretty much left with middle seats. All right, that, but that's the way it works. It is open seating. So, so here's the deal. We get on... Uh, we, we get on at the back of the A group is where we were yesterday. So sometimes when my wife, Fran, and I fly, we, we sit across the aisle from each other because I'm, I'm tall and I, I like to have a little bit of leg room to be able to stretch out in the aisle every once in a while. And my wife is petite, and so, so she doesn't mind the middle seat. So like yesterday, she wanted to sit next to me. Wasn't that nice? So we get on, and um, about eight rows back on the plane, there, there's a guy who's sitting on the who's gotten on ahead of us. He's sitting on the window seat. So we just jump in the row. Fran sits in the middle. I sit on the aisle. Okay, no problem. In the row behind us, there is a woman who is sitting in the middle seat. So the window seat and the aisle seat are open. All right? She's gotten on first. So... What happens is there's people coming down the aisle after us, and it's like a husband and wife, and they stop, and they say to the lady, here, we're going to get in here, we're going to take these seats, to which the lady who is sitting in the middle seat says, no, you can't have them, I'm saving saving it for my husband. And the lady who wants to sit there says, you can't save seats, it's open seating. And she says, I'm, she says, you're going to have to move on. I'm saving it for my husband. And at which point in time, now they start arguing back and forth. The lady saying, I, I'm here. I'm saving it. You know, my husband's going to be getting on uh, soon. You know, I'm saving the seat for him. And the other two people, they're saying, you, you can't do that. It's open seating. You don't have a right to do it. And they're kind of now at the point where they're shouting at each other. The flight attendant is nowhere to be seen because they don't want to get involved in this. And the way it ultimately turned out is... The, the two people who wanted to take the open seats, uh, eventually, after some heated exchange, they you know said a nasty word at the woman who was sitting in the middle seat, and then they, they moved on and they found you know other spaces further back. But the lady was essentially squatting. She had gotten on. Presumably, maybe she had paid the early bird discount or whatever. She had gotten on first, and then she decided on a full flight that she wanted to save the seats for her husband, who was coming on later. All right. Our number, 
855-616-1620. That is our talk and text line. 855-616-1620. That's the, that's the uh, talk and text line. Here is my question. Okay, who's right in this scenario? The woman gets on first. It's open seating on the plane. Should she be able to save the seat for her husband, who is getting on later, presumably because he didn't pay for the upgrade or was late or whatever, but she's decided, I'm on first and I'm going to hold this seat for, in this case, my spouse, who's getting on later. Should she have had a right to do it? 855-616-1620. That's the, that's the talk and text line. How would you handle that situation? We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. Okay, so th- this, is, this is the deal. Long story short, Southwest has open seating. We're on the plane woman behind us is sitting in the middle seat. They've already announced, hey, find, find seats. It's full. Um, so couple comes down the aisle. They want to sit in the aisle in the window seat. The lady in the middle seat says, no, you can't have it. I'm saving it for my husband. And some people are saying, well, maybe he was in the bathroom. No, he wasn't in the bathroom. He didn't board. He, I, I saw the husband come on. The husband's in the C group. Husband comes on substantially later. She says, I know it's a full flight, but I am saving this for my husband. You cannot have the seats. And then there's going back and forth. The people say, no, you can't save them. It is open seating. We want these two seats. Now, ultimately, after... Uh, a bit of arguing, and the flight attendants don't want to get involved in the middle of this. The the, the two who wanted the seat and seats ended up moving on. But who was in the right? Who was in the wrong? Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Let's start with Julie. Julie in Kenosha, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yeah. Good morning, Jeff. How are you? Good. What do you think? Who's right? Who's wrong? Well, this is a situation. I think the couple was totally in the right. Um, I was telling your screener, we were coming back from a college girls trip from Nashville. And um, I had paid the 20 bucks early bird uh, pricing on Southwest uh, to pick my seat. And my former college roommate, she was like, well, just save me a seat. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to be able to do that. You're going to have to pay the 20 bucks because I'm not going to be able to save you a seat. They won't allow it. So she ended up paying the 20 bucks. But the point is, if you don't pay your 20 bucks, you don't get the, you don't get, you don't get a safe seat. Right. So no squatters rights. So you think the lady who refused to, to get up or move or who refused to let the other two people sit in the aisle and the uh, window seat, you think she was completely wrong? I do. I really do. Her husband didn't have the priority seating, right? And so she gave him a seat. Yeah. No. No. Thanks. Thanks for call. Okay. That's the question. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That. That's it. That is it exactly. Should you be? And this is. This is. By the way, it's again. It's a full flight. They're telling people. You're. You're. You know. They're. They're telling people find a seat. Um. Because it, it's a full flight. You're not going to be able to do. I. What people do sometimes on these Southwest flights is like you'll see a husband and a wife that'll sit in the window in the aisle seat and they'll put bags in the middle seat, trying to discourage people to sit between them. Uh, South Southwest is saying no. This this is not going to ha- the, the flight's full. So you know you're you're not going to be able to reserve that. But this is kind of different. Karen, Karen, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Oh hi Jeff. Hi Karen. Oh Jeff, I just that story just gets gets me. I I have experienced the same thing on Southwest. I'm telling the screener, I won't fly it. I mean, I just it, 
it just uh, it just drives me crazy. Like I said, there's a couple of things. There's two things on, uh, that are wrong. Number one, that the woman is sitting there saving a seat. Number two, that there's no flight attendant or anybody who comes in and just tells her what the rules are. Yeah, yeah. No, the, right. The flight attendant clearly. Now, they're, they're, I'm not. I'm not trying to be too critical. Thanks for calling, Karen. I, I'm not trying to be too critical because they're they're doing other stuff. They're trying to get people on board and get people. You know, they they, they want to. The flight was a little bit late, so they want to get people on board and get it settled and get bags up in the the bin so that they can push away. So I'm I'm trying not to be too critical of it. But the the flight attendants in this particular situation had no interest in being um in in refereeing this. All right, eight five five six one six one six twenty. We're being swamped here on our text line. She absolutely has no right to save these seats for anyone. My wife and I run into this all the time. I'm not as patient as my wife, and I've had words with several people. Um, if we keep letting this happen, people will keep doing it. The ne- I told my wife the next time this happens, I'm sitting next to them and make their flight very uncomfortable. Jeff, this makes me nuts. Southwest needs to make an announcement before boarding saying saving seats is prohibited. This might help. Jeff, I fly Southwest Airlines once a month. That woman was 100% in the wrong. They should have taken time to get a flight attendant to educate a whole bunch of people who might have been listening. Jeff, do you know for sure that the husband didn't have priority? I, I, I don't know about that. I know the husband wasn't on the plane. So, but that, that to me, that doesn't make any difference. If you are not, if they board A1 through 60 and you don't show up at the gate until they're boarding the C, it doesn't make any difference. I mean, that the priority lets you get on the plane before others. If you if you decide not to, that's just, I think, too bad, too sad. Jeff, this is totally on Southwest. I think they invite this sort of bad behavior. Um, let's see. Jeff, it's no big deal. She's only saving one seat for her husband, not six seats. Well, that also becomes another interesting thing. What if they were traveling with their, I don't know, their their 25-year-old daughter? We're going to take our daughter out. Should she have been able to save two seats? I, I and I guess my question would be, if not, why not, if you think that that's okay? Jeff, she should not be able to save the seat, and Southwest should make that more clear. I've already had people in line before boarding call a scout spouse up from the back of the line to board with them in front of me. And the ticket agent checked them in with no comment whatsoever. Aren't they checking if people are board to board at a specific order? Um, Jeff, I don't think she has a right to save the seat, but really, is it worth the argument? Just move on. Well, I guess that's the question here. I mean, are you are you endorsing and condoning bad behavior if you let it happen? One of our texters says, the lady who t- had the, held the seat won. Bad behavior is only wrong if you're held accountable. Well, there is something like this. Jeff, this happens all the time. I've seen one person put coats and suitcases on a number of seats, one person saving seats together for a family of six. Jeff, she can't do that. She should have gone back further in the plane, so the chance of someone trying to sit by her would be less. Jeff, absolutely not. It's open seating, and her husband hadn't boarded yet. Um, on the other hand, I would have kept moving and not argued. Okay, so the um, we're getting, again, swamped with text. The, the, I will tell you my take on this, and I think my wife might have actually disagreed with me, but we didn't really argue about it. I think the lady behind me was completely and totally in the wrong. It's and I guess here's my response on this. If you want the priority seating, you pay the 20 bucks or $25 or whatever it is for it, and then you, you show up on, on time. Now, I, I, again, I, I don't know why the husband wasn't there. My presumption is 
my presumption is he decided to save the 20 bucks. You get on, honey, and then I'll, you save me the seats. You take the risk with that. Now, the lady in this particular case clearly sat in the middle seat because she wanted, I think, to discourage people from sitting in that row. Okay, that's the chance she takes. She had the priority, but I guess I feel kind of strongly about that. If if you want that priority seating, what you do is you pay the extra 20 bucks, you sign up at the same time, and, and you board with whoever you want to travel with. If somebody that you're traveling with gets on first, I guess I don't have a problem with them saying, well, I'm trying to save this seat for my husband. But when the other people object and say, no, it's open seating, I think it's open seating. And I think I agree with the texters who say that Southwest should make this clearer, that it's first come, first serve, and you don't get squatters' rights just because you get on. And the bottom line is, if you if that's what you want to do, well, then, then everybody pays the upgrade fee, and then you're going to be able to kind of sit together. But absent that, you have no right to save seats for other people when people want them. And I think, you know, again, Southwest, I get it. Southwest doesn't want to get in the middle of this. They don't want to antagonize the customers who are trying to squat, the lady who's trying to get the extra seat, and they don't want to antagonize the people who are getting on. But if it's open seating, it's open seating. And to me, it's pretty clear that means no saving seats if somebody else— you know, decides that they want the seat. Now, again, I don't think there's anything wrong with the lady saying, gee, I, I was trying to hold this for my, my husband. You know, he's getting on a little bit later on. But if, if and some people probably say, okay, that's okay, we'll find some more seats. But on the other hand, if they say no, I don't think you have any right to that seat at all. What's well, kind of interesting, because there were raised voices, and I'm thinking, huh, Number one, this is a great story to talk about on the radio for a Monday. And number two, what happens if somebody starts throwing punches? <laughs> Just it, it was kind of getting a little heated. And my guess is this does, in fact, happen all the time. Bottom line is the lady who was squatting and trying to save the seats, she ended up winning. But was that just rewarding bad behavior? Okay, so one of my other Vegas op, um, observations, we get in eh, Tuesday afternoon, like around 1230 or something like that. We were staying at New York, New York. So our, our ritual is once we get in, first thing we do is we walk up the strip and go to the Margaritaville, which is in the Flamingo, which is kind of on the center of the street. I had never seen, I've never seen more police officers all over the Las Vegas Strip. I mean, and this is especially like the daytime. We're talking like, I don't know, one thirty, two o'clock or whatever. Come to find out that um, about an hour or so beforehand at the other end of the Strip, there was some guy who just went on a knife attack. And this, I think, made national news, went and stabbed a couple of the... The, the performers, you know, if you go to if you if you go to Vegas, there's always like these street performers, like the the young women who will dress up as the showgirls and they'll pose, and the people that dress up like Darth Vader or, or, or superheroes or things like that. Um, a guy pulls out a knife, killed one of the showgirls, killed somebody else, and then started running down the strip, stabbing people. Ended up stabbing like eight people before they they ended up catching him. But that's of course. If you're in Las Vegas, the last thing, the very last thing that authorities want or officials want is the word to get out that, hey, you can't walk up and down this Las Vegas Strip at, at 12 noon for fear of being stabbed. And so, man, the police presence was just incredible. There has been an increasing problem, it seems to me, at sporting events where you have fans that are running onto the field. Two weeks ago, there was the the guy that they were, they're trying to protest. It was out in California, and they're trying to protest 
uh, the, the trial of a couple of these animal rights kooks who broke into the Smithfield processing plant and they, they released a bunch of pigs and they've, they've been charged with felonies and they're on trial. So it was, I think it was at either Sunday night football game or the Monday night football game last week, forget which one. So you have the, these people who run out on the fields and they've got the, the big smoke bombs that are putting out the, the red smoke and things like that. And one gets tackled by security. The second one gets taken down by Los Angeles Rams football player Bobby Wagner, who comes off the bench and levels the guy. Boom! Down, you know, down he goes. And I, I have no sympathy at all. I mean, for this, As a matter of fact, I, I think it's one of the lessons is that you know that they got to tighten up security at these games. You had a whole, you had several instances of this at basketball games where people sit on the court and things like that, or they get close to the court where people are running onto the court. And here's the problem: just like what happened. I was describing earlier on in Las Vegas on Thursday, <clears throat> where you have some kook who you know gets onto the Las Vegas Strip and starts you know stabbing people, pedestrians on the Strip, or the again the performers, the people who are dressed up as showgirls or whatever. Um, th- this sooner or later, if they don't tighten up security at these games, something bad is going to happen because it's not going to be an animal rights nut who who's running onto the field. It's going to be somebody who goes running onto the basketball court or whatever with a knife. And just like what happened to what Steffi Groff, the tennis player years ago, um, you know, will stab him. That that's that inevitably is is going to happen. And that's why I, I think if I were if I were running an NBA team or a Major League Baseball team or a football team or a soccer team or whatever, I'd really be looking at ways, how can you tighten this up? You don't want it to be an armed camp. And I understand, particularly in basketball, you know, you want the experience of the fans being able to get close. But but sooner or later, it's not going to have a happy ending. Sooner or later, again, it's not going to just be some protester who wants to run on or some kook who wants to run on and get their 15 minutes of fame. It's going to be somebody who's going to hurt a player or hurt someone else. So I think they really need to tighten it up, which brings me to what happened yesterday. The Atlanta Falcons are playing at Tampa Bay. And if you want to see a video of this, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I've got a link to this. Okay. So Tampa Bay playing Atlanta. What happens is um, in, I believe it's the second quarter of the game, uh, Tampa Bay has just scored a, a touchdown and the Buccaneers are lining up for to kick the extra point when suddenly this person runs onto the field goes tearing onto the field they're actually they're on the field and they're running and what happens is it always happens security starts chasing them and in this case security takes down the person who's run on the field and you can see in the video they take them down pretty hard i mean there's there's, you know, the person's running onto the field, and, and boom, two security people catch them, and they go down, and they go down on them, and they, there's no question. They take the runner on the field down hard, and they, they hold the runner down on the field. You know, they, they hold him down. I mean, I'm not talking about 30 seconds or a minute, but they take him down hard, and they hold him down while they are securing him. All right, so here's, here's the story. As it turns out, it's a kid who ran onto the field. The mother, um, who was in the stands with other children, originally says, that was a 10-year-old. That was my 10-year-old child, and look how hard, and starts complaining about how hard security was when they took the kid down. All right? Now, subsequently, the Tampa Bay police come out and they say, no, the, the lady didn't know which one of her kids it was that ran onto the field. She had multiple kids there, and actually, they, they're not saying how old the child was, but they said he's older than 10. 
He was older than 10. He ran onto the, the field, and he's apparently been issued now a citation. Florida Statute 985.12 gives law enforcement authorization to issue the youth a civil citation in lieu of an arrest. So that means he's somewhere, they say he's he wasn't 10. He's older than that. So they, they again, it's a, it's a citation. So they didn't arrest the kid for running on the field. But the issue now has become, boy, security really landed on the kid hard. And again, if you watch the if you watch the video, boom, they 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 go they take him down firmly. <laughs> Our number is 855-616-1620. The mom is complaining that boy, they, look how how much force they use to take down my child. And again, she first of all said it was ten. She she didn't know which child ran onto the field, and also didn't control the child. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Here's my question to you: Should we be upset with security forces that took down? the person that was running on the field. Now that it turns out, I don't, if we know it wasn't the 10-year-old, but 11-year-old, 12-year-old, 13-year-old, uh, let, let's let's assume that it's like a 12-year-old kid who gets taken down firmly when that kid chooses to run onto the field. Should we be sympathetic to the mother and the child who, boy, they used excessive force in taking them down? 855-616-1620. My take on this is pretty simple. It, it's... First of all, lady, if you take your kids to the game, you have an obligation to watch them. Secondly, play stupid games. Bad things can happen. And if you can't control your children and one of them runs onto the field, the security people don't know how old the person is. They don't know whether it's 10 or 15 or whatever. They don't know what the intention is. The kid runs onto the field. The kid should expect to be taken down by security. That is their job first and foremost, not to literally treat somebody who is out of control running onto a field with kid gloves. 855-616-1620. What do you think? Back to discuss in just a moment. Okay, so in a quick update, the the last Monday night, the the second animal rights kook who ran onto the field during the, what was it, 49ers-Rams game with the pink smoke bomb, who got leveled by Rams linebacker Bobby Wagner, he has now filed a, a police report. He wants the police to issue charges against Wagner for leveling him for when he was trespassing onto the field. Good luck with that. So what happens yesterday is that you have at the Tampa Bay-Atlanta game, second quarter, um, person jumps gets onto the field somehow, runs onto the field while they're getting ready to line up for the kickoff. And in this case, security grab them. They take the person down hard. If you watch it, they, they take them down hard, hold them down till they can secure them, put handcuffs on them, and they're hauling them off. Well, it turns out it, it's a kid. Now, the, the story says child. The mother originally says, oh, this was a 10-year-old. The authorities say, no, it's not a 10-year-old. She didn't know which one of her kids ran out onto the field. I mean, I'm looking at, at a picture. I... It's it's a teenager, but of course security, this is all happening in a blink. The mother is upset. Some people are upset. The way the story is presented is, look how hard the security took down a child. My reaction is, hey, you know, if, if you're going to let your kid run onto the field, expect bad things are going to happen because the security, they don't know whether it's a 10-year-old or a 14-year-old or a 24-year-old who happens to be small. All they know is that there's somebody who is now running onto the field, and Lord knows what it is they're going to do. I have no sympathy for the kid. I have no sympathy for the mother. Um, Our number, 855-616-1620. Let's start with Mark. Mark, you're first. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. How are we doing? Good. What do you think? 
Good, good, good. Well, I, I, you and I, you stole a bit of my thunder. I'm totally on the same page as you. I said, first of all, I said, the, the security didn't have time to chop, stop and check this kid's or <laughs> I, for an ID to find out how old he was. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, and, and nowadays, at any age, you really can't trust kids. I mean, there's so many things going on in middle schools and whatever else. You don't know what agenda this kid had. Might have been very, very innocent. But the bottom line, security had to do what they did in a very aggressive way. I totally agree with it. Secondly, probably the bigger issue I have with the whole thing is the fact that what is so common nowadays is everybody is always trying to take blame and place somewhere else rather than taking on responsibility of watching their kid. If she'd been watching her kid, this never would have happened. End of story. She didn't even know which one of her kids ran onto the field. She originally said it's a 10-year-old. The cops are saying, no, she had many kids. This was was not the 10-year-old. Now, I don't know if it's a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old. How many times do you see it nowadays, Jeff? And it gets so old. Where, where you see people are always trying to say, well, this person tackled my kid, which was 100% wrong in the first place for even being out there. They tackle him too hard. How, how hard is too hard of a tackle yeah. in a situation like this? Well, I mean, you can't gauge that sort of thing. You just have to take the appropriate measures. And in my opinion, they did exactly what they were supposed to do. Exactly. You have to control the situation. No, thanks for the call. That, that's why the, the ultimate irony is, again, the guy the last Monday who runs onto the field. And if you watch it, he, he's he's running around security. One of the security guys kind of slips, looks to me like that one of the security guys blew out his knee. But then he's by the sidelines and you get the football player who comes off the sidelines and, and, and levels him. And and now you've got the street, then, not the streaker, but you've got the protester who, who says, I want to file a police report. You know, he assaulted me. Well, okay, you know, you, you run onto the football field, you play stupid games, stupid things happen. Jeff, I just watched the footage. The kid was trying to juke security before he was tackled. He knew what he was doing. Uh, no issues with me. Um, Jeff, um, we should not be upset with security. The mother should have managed her kids so the kids are not going on the field. Um, wow, is, is that unusual? Um, there's just too many parents uh, that are out there today. Jeff, you're so right. This is one of the big problems with our country these days. Parents hold everyone else accountable for their child's bad behavior but themselves. I mean, just, okay, th- think about when you were a kid growing up. Now, my my mom and dad you know, took me to various sporting events. It would have never occurred to me to, hey, I'm going to try to jump a fence and run onto the field. And, and the truth of the matter is, if I had done something like that, I don't know what the reaction would have been, but I guarantee you my father or my mother wouldn't be giving interviews complaining about, oh, they were too tough when they took down um, uh, Jeff, you know, <laughs> you know uh, that's it. Jeff, you run onto a football field, expect to be taken down firmly. Jeff, nobody should apologize for anything that was done. Maybe if guns or tasers are used, but that might have been an overreach. But it's awful hard to claim to control security, how, if, how, how tell security how they are going to tackle somebody. And if you don't want to be tackled by security or the police, don't run onto the field and run away. Yeah, there's kind of an element at that. Jeff, the mother is at fault. People need to control their kids. Um, yeah, well, you'd think that that would be that. Jeff, I bet the kid learned his lesson and won't do it again. Well, I don't know about that. That's the thing. I, I, I don't know because you have people who want their their 15 minutes of fame. So, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the kid's going to go to high school today, and the kid's going to wave around, and people are going to say, oh, hey, you were the guy that ran onto the field, and, and maybe will people will—, will I mean, maybe I don't know what sort of feedback the kid is going to get on that. Jeff, they should give the mother the citation. Jeff, 
this was probably just a setup to sue for money. Um, yeah, well, I, I don't know about that, but inevitably there will be the claim. Jeff, maybe the police should have just dialed 311 and said, stop, don't do that. That way the kid could have hurt themselves or bystanders just to ensure the kid wasn't overpowered by, in this case, it was security. I don't think it was police. I think it was the the security that was there. Jeff, should we be asking the same question we ask about youth crime in Milwaukee? Shouldn't the parents be liable for the actions of their reckless children? Well, I think that there's, um, you know, some aspect that's there. So, you know, here's here's the deal. Um, mother feels that the child was aggrieved. The child, again, feels that, oh, security took him down too hard. My response is, if you don't want bad things to happen, then don't do stupid bad things in the first place. And everybody, even at the age of 10 or 12, knows that you can't run onto a football field. And if you do, bad stuff going to happen. So, very glad to have you with us. All right. Um, I, I know people are skeptical of polls, and I understand why that is. Nevertheless, I think it's interesting. The uh, election is going to be four weeks from tomorrow. Um, new polls out over the weekend. Uh, the CBS News YouGov, which tends to be a Democrat-leaning poll, that has, uh, let's see, that has a t- dead statistical tie between Tim Michaels and Tony Evers. It has, um, let's see, Johnson leading Barnes by one. There is, there, there is sort of a, a trend that is starting to emerge if you look at all, all the various polls. And the, at least at this point in time, the momentum seems to be on the side of the Republican candidates. Tim Michaels, who was down in several polls, now is leading by mo- in most of the polls. The most recent, I'm just looking at the last uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight polls, and um, Michaels is ahead in you know five of those eight. One has it tied, and two others have Evers ahead by two. So there's starting to be a trend emerging. Same thing is true in the U.S. Senate race that uh, Mandela Barnes is is fallen behind in the average of the polls. Now again, a lot can change over the course of the next four weeks. But if you again look at the different polls that are emerging, um, for example, if I look at the last. At seven polls involving the Senate race, Ron Johnson and Mandela Barnes. Uh, Ron Johnson is leading in six of those seven, and the other one, which is a Democrat-leaning poll, the PPP poll, that that's has it as a tie. So Ron Johnson starting to pull away again, close. The average spread is about a three-point lead for Johnson, and again, a lot of stuff can happen. But um, Wisconsin is starting to it appears at least come home around Ron Johnson, the Mandela Barnes campaign, n- not taking off at this point in time and the governor's race. Well, the governor's race is just too close to call. When we come back, it happened on Friday night. It's going to happen again next Friday. Some people are not going to like my comments about it. Stick around. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. So Mike Spaulding, you know, the um, number of people, I'm a huge baseball fan, of course, and number of people are asking me my reactions to the playoffs. A couple different things. Phillies beat the Cardinals. Cardinals, of course, um, beat out the Brewers. Phillies beat the Cardinals. And people are asking me my reaction. Number one, I was thrilled to see it. Number two, I was even more thrilled because I bet on the Phillies in both games and cashed both tickets, which was 
unusual cashing tickets given the way I was doing in general. But Phillies just uh, Cardinals down in flames, <clears throat> crash and burn. Yeah, it was a tough. It was a tough look. After the game one, I didn't have a lot of faith that game two was going to go any differently. When you have those perfect opportunities in the playoffs, you got to cash in, and uh, St. Louis did not. Okay, even worse than the Phillies, though. All right, so um, was and, and this th- there's just so many different layers of this, but the New York Mets, who were the it team, who crumbled in the last you know month of the season, and then they go on to lose to Josh Hader and the San Diego Padres, two out of three games, you know, which again makes me wonder. And again, I, I'm on record. I think the Hader trade might go down as the the worst trade in Brewers baseball history, and uh, time will tell. We know it was bad. It was a dreadful trade. Um, but you don't know how bad I guess it is. Maybe it could be partially salvaged if two of the the two minor leaguers they get, if one of them ever can play in the, the major leagues. But uh, Josh Hader pitched an inning last night, and you wonder how Hader feels that his team is going on while the Brewers are, I don't know, playing golf or doing whatever. I guess that depends on how much he likes golf. <laughs> that that could be well. He probably likes cashing those playoff checks and things like that. Yes, I haven't had a chance after the season. And I see, I saw, I sent a tweet about this. I said Craig Council. And look, I, this comes from my perspective. I'm a huge baseball fan. I'm a huge Brewers fan. I spend my own money to to go season tickets. You know, we have partial season tickets and stuff. And I I saw Craig Council say, "Oh, wait, I think we have a good baseball team." No, they didn't have a good baseball team. They finished seventh out of fifteen. That's an average baseball team. They were a mediocre baseball team. And the big problem they made last year is assuming that they were better than they were. And if they have that same thing, they're going to be even worse next year. Do you think the hater trade was made worse at because the Brewers are riding this wave of success for the past five, six seasons? That I mean, you know, these things ebb and flow, and they've been riding high well, they, Josh Hader, and I understand he went through a rocky period of time in the middle of the season. I think part of that was due he had some personal issues. His wife had a baby. The, the baby was you know struggling and stuff. I think that was a distraction. He righted himself. The last six weeks of the season, he was back to the old Josh Hader. I, I think it was a salary dump, pure and simple. The Brewers didn't want to pay the salary for this year or next year, and it sent a message to everybody else in the clubhouse that we're going to trade the one of the best relievers in baseball, and we're going to get a starting pitcher that we immediately cut, uh, a relief pitcher who was awful, and two minor leaguers. I think it was. I, I think there's no other way to portray it as that. And I think a lot of fans, myself included, and a lot of the players just thought the front office was given up. Yeah, it was a real bummer the way that the season ended. Was it last week or two? It was last, last week, week, right? Yeah, yeah, yep, 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 yep. You you have to if if you you they could have been the Phillies if yeah. they. If they ran the table and beat Florida and Arizona in those, those last seven games, if they had won those seven games, they would have been the Phillies. They would have been in that position, um, but they, they didn't. They lost three or four to the Marlins and, what, two or three to Arizona. It was just a pathetic way to finish yeah. the season. I think baseball more than any other, almost more than any other sport, probably besides maybe like the NCAA tournament, Like if you're the first team in or the last team into the playoffs, you almost have equal opportunity to go to the World Series. And you can see that, obviously, with this weekend's games between the Padres and the Phillies, as you mentioned. But yeah, it it does kind of hurt a little bit more when you're watching it from the outside and say, man, if we just could have got in... Right, and and, and then you wonder, like, okay, because when they traded Josh Hader, I'm sorry, I'm on on my sports soapbox here. When they traded Hader, it completely screwed up the bullpen ratio. They had Hader would pitch the ninth, and Williams would pitch the eighth, and they have somebody pitch the seventh. After that, they didn't have a closer. It was just a complete mess. People blame Council. I don't. They just didn't. That front office let him down and let the fans down. So that's 
and the big question is going to be, what are they going to be ne- do next year to make sure that this doesn't happen again? Well, and you trade Josh Hader because you're pretty confident that you have a guy who's going to be the next you know, closer, and I I don't know about you, you probably watch more Brewers games than I did this year, but it doesn't seem like uh, maybe Devin Williams is no, cut he, out he, for that right. role he necessarily. Was, he, was, he was fine in the eighth inning role, but he's just not that closer. A uh, number of people are agreeing me that it was the worst trade in Brewers history. I, I, it, it's a little bit early, but it was it was really, really bad. There's no question about it, and the team has a lot of holes, and it'll be a challenge. But I did, I, I did, I was glad to see the Phillies win, in particular because I, I had money on the game, and second, the games, and secondly, I, I did take pleasure in seeing San Diego beat beat the beat um, the New York Mets on just a number of different levels. Yeah, you and me both. Yeah, especially after the Giants beat the Packers. But I digress. All right, all right. I, I want to talk about the U.S. Senate debate from last Friday night, but I want to take a a different approach to this. Now, as I said, I was in Las Vegas, and when I am in Las Vegas, the two places in the country that I go on vacation, and when I go there, I just completely punch out, is number one, Las Vegas. The only newspapers and stuff I'm looking at is is the Daily Racing Forum, and and Key West. Everywhere else I I go, I I tend to keep up with current events and things like that. But so Las Vegas, I was not following the the events closely at all other than you know just like the headline news when it came on in the hotel room but i wasn't following the events very closely but i was curious about the the u.s senate debate there's only going to be two u.s senate debates Um, mandela barnes passed on the third one and for the governor's race which is coming up this friday there's only going to be one the only debate scheduled in the governor's race is going to be this friday so what i did I had, and I'm not going to fib to you. I wasn't going to pay attention to it on Friday night. That's um, tell you what I did Friday night. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But I, what I did do is is I taped it. So it was an hour debate. I taped it, and then when I came home last night, got home, my wife unpacks the suitcases. I drive up to West Bend, meet Sister Pat, pick up the dog, come back. And so last night, I I decided I was going to in anticipation of this topic, and I, I hadn't read anything about it, I was going to watch the Senate debate, or at least watch as much of it to give me a flavor for, for what was going on. So, you know, I, I fire up the DVR last night, and, and I'm watching this. And and to answer, I guess, the, the big question, my opinion, Mandela Barnes, Ron Johnson, I, I, don't, I don't think anybody's mind was changed. I mean, there wasn't this oops moment. There wasn't, oh my gosh, I'm not going to vote for Ron Johnson. Oh my gosh, I was planning to vote for Mandela Barnes. I'm not going to. I, I think it, it was pretty much of a nothing burger as far as moving the needle. I, I think both candidates were, were fine. But what struck me was that this, this debate, which was put on by the Wisconsin Broadcasters Association, and and look, we're, we're this radio station is a member of the WBA, and I think you know, people at, at our radio station have been officers at the WBA. So I, I don't mean this is going to sound harsher than I mean, because I, I like the association. They, they do a lot for the industry. Having said that, and I, I look and I don't know if anybody watched the debate. It was Friday night, for goodness sake. So I, I don't know how many people actually watched the debate. But the format that was created by the Wisconsin Broadcasters Association might be the worst format that I have ever seen for a quote-unquote debate. And what's really problematic is they're going to do it again in the governor's race. So what are you talking about, Jeff? Well, well, here's the deal. It really wasn't a debate. It was kind of like an organized press conference. 
It's an hour long. You want to hear from the two candidates, right? Well, okay, this was rather than a, a let's hear from the candidates debate. It was more like a, a supposed star turn for reporters. Okay, so you had uh, you had a, two candidates, one hour, right? You had Jill Geisler, who was the you know the moderator, all right. Then you had not one, not two, not three, not four, not five. You had six, six reporters who were asking questions. There was a guy from the Madison TV station. There was a guy from a Green Bay TV station. There was a reporter from Lacrosse, a radio station. There was a reporter from a Wausau TV station. There was a news anchor from Telemundo, Wisconsin, and there was an anchor from Milwaukee. One of them had COVID, so they were just they and even with COVID, they weren't there, but they were still like phoning in questions. You had six people Six people asking questions, and some of the questions were were bizarre. And it was this very like tight format. There wasn't back and forth there in, in any sort of meaningful way. It was like, okay, let's let the reporters have questions. And the frustrating thing to me is that they're going to do this again on Friday night. They've got six people who are lined up to do the same thing, including you know my colleague Ken Harris, who's a commentator on the the Truth down the hall. And and I have nothing against. You know, any of the individual people, reporters or commentators or whatever, who ask questions. That, that's not it. it. It's the numbers. You can't—six people is at least three too many. It makes the debate essentially useless. It makes it all about the reporters and not about the candidates. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's for, look, for anybody who watched it, I mean, I, I give you credit— but I, I was just sitting there thinking, this is not what this should be about. I, I think the way debate should be run is they should be between the candidates. You have maybe a moderator who's there to try to rein things in and keep it under control. But otherwise, just let it go. Let the two candidates go after each other. That's what a debate is supposed to be instead of a tightly scripted, organized news conference. And if that's what the Wisconsin Broadcasters Association, at least in my opinion, put on on Friday, and they should have immediately learned from what they did on Friday, and they should have immediately said, oh, this really didn't work, and we're not going to do the same thing with Michaels and with Evers, and so we're, we're going to have two candidates. We're going to, I'm sorry, we're going to reach out to at least three of the six people that we had invited in before and say, look, this format really didn't work. There's too many of you here. We're, we're going to go with three, or we're going to go with two. What do you think? Back to discuss in just a moment. 855-616-1620. Jeff, the format they used was not a debate, and it was disappointing, completely question and answer. Yeah, and and a number number you're pointing out, a number of the questions were were very bizarre. Like they're focusing on marijuana legalization, which maybe you can address it to the governors, but for the Senate race, that that really really has— I don't want to say no relevance, but almost no relevance at, at all. The, the questions were weird, but I, I don't I don't even want to pick on that. To me, it's just the format. You, you've got one Senate debate. You well, there'll, there'll be two. One governor's debate. You've got six people asking all these different questions. What you want to do is you don't you want to have an interaction between the candidates? Let let them go after each other. That's what it's all about. Not the reporters. Judy, you're on Judy, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Judy. I watched the debate. I was very disappointed. I agree with your opinion. 
Uh, the worst part of it was the next day on one of the local channels, they talked about it and said that the whole time Johnson was berating Barnes, and it was totally the opposite. Yeah, I, yeah, I, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't see any of the like post debate commentary and stuff like that. I, I just, to, to me, I, I don't think there's anything about it that would have changed anybody's mind. And, you know, I, you, you got to understand that the media, that the mainstream media is not a fan of Ron Johnson. And I think they're getting more and more frustrated that he started to pull ahead of the polls. But I, I but, but just the format was just, I, I thought, terrible. And I guess I'm just a little bit frustrated, Judy, that they're going to do it again on Friday, same yeah. format, without recognizing that this doesn't work. Hey, thanks for the call. I mean, a number of our texts are coming in. And um, I, I think, you know, to me, it would have been much better off if you would have had a moderator. There, no, no real rebuttal and, and things like that. I mean, let, let, let's let's have an, an interaction. And again, I, I think you can also criticize some of the choices of, of questioning. These are obscure sort of stuff. Why, why don't we talk about, you know, inflation, which is the, you know, the number one issue that's there. Uh, Jeff, it drives me crazy when the person asking the question goes on and on prefacing it. Just ask the question. Time limits on question asking. Well, you have to understand, this is this is the star turn for, you know, these reporters. You, you have, you know, some no offense to somebody who does TV in, in Wausau or somebody who does radio in La Crosse or somebody who does TV in Madison or Green Bay, but th- this is their moment. They're on C-SPAN and stuff, and so they don't want to waste their moment by blah-de-blah-de-blah-de-blah-de-blah. They, they want to get their FaceTime as as well. Uh, Jeff, they they didn't answer the questions. Well, right. That's well. There's so many of these questions. That's what. That, that's why if you have a moderator and you ask the question, then the moderator can do the the follow up. Mr. Johnson, the question was, or Mr. Barnes, the question was, or or whatever. That's um, you know that that's there. Somebody says, didn't the candidates agree to the format? Yeah. I now I understand why both of the candidates would agree to the format because it's completely and totally meaningless the way you know they set this, you know, thing up, um, you know, and some people are criticizing the moderator. I, I, that's, that, that's, it's hard to do that type of stuff. So that's, that's not my point. My point is the Wisconsin Broadcasters Association has a great opportunity and I think they have screwed it up by deciding we're going to incorporate and include, you know, everybody in this particular thing when the, the debate should be about the two candidates, it should be about Tim Michaels and Tony Evers. It should be about Ron Johnson and Mandela Barnes. It shouldn't be about six, you know, reporters from across the, the state and, you know, a moderator. It's not about them. Let the candidates interact. Let them push each other. Then then you get some fireworks and you get some interesting stuff and, and maybe you get some, you know, real headlines out of it. Um, Jeff, the debate's first question was about marijuana legislation. Like that's the highest priority topic on every voter's mind. I thought the topics were all skewed to the left's talking points. They even mentioned inflation. Well, again, that's you know, that that's a, you have reporters that come in with agendas, but that's not the point. The point is the format is bad. The point is the Wisconsin Broadcasters Association should know better. And given the fact that there's only going to be one governor's debate, they should immediately decide we've changed this. And if this means they have to go to three of the six panelists they have lined up for Friday and say, you know, we're, we're, we're getting, we're scrapping this. We, we've recognized it hasn't worked. Then they should do it. Because at the end of the day, it's not about the broadcasters. It's not about the reporters. 
It's about the candidates. Okay, last week, San Francisco, it's Fleet Week. Like I said, the fleet was in, and they had an air show that was scheduled, including the Blue Angels. So the Blue Angels were supposed to fly over San Francisco yesterday. Well, as often happens in San Francisco, you you get foggy weather, so they had to cancel the uh, event. So here's the interesting thing. One of the San Francisco supervisors, a self-described Democratic Socialist, said, good. He was happy that the Blue Angels flight was canceled. He said the Blue Angels should not be able to fly, allowed to fly over San Francisco. That's it. That's the tweet. So, all right, this is the way some people think. It's like, okay, the Blue Angels, you know, this is the military. These are the people that, you know, fly the fighter jets and stuff. We don't want them here in San Francisco. They just shouldn't be allowed to fly. And the scary thing isn't that you got kooks like this that are out there. The scary things is that you get kooks like this who get elected to public office. The Blue Angels shouldn't be allowed to fly. Wow. Hey, Wisconsin, can you feel it? It's getting colder outside, and you should know what that means. It's time for the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase, presented by Great Midwest Bank. This week, we're featuring our friends at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. You can find out more by visiting their website at PellaWI.com. It's Wagner's Home Improvement Showcase on Wisconsin's radio station, 620 WTMJ. If... You get home from work today and you go out to the mailbox and you find that you didn't get any mail today. Well, nobody got any mail today because this is, it is Indigenous Peoples Day. It is also Columbus Day. A number of people like texted me, asked me, are you going to talk about this? Historically, it has been Columbus Day. And Columbus Day, of course, honors Christopher Columbus, who discovered the New World. Um, Columbus has become controversial as we, again, look back at history because people blame Columbus with um, the fact that he discovered the, the New World. He believes that that led to genocide and rape and, and death. Um, so it's like, okay, this is, this is terrible because we shouldn't honor Columbus who founded America. And then because you had all these people who immigrated from Europe and stuff, Christopher Columbus, I guess the argument would be that the world would be a better place if America had not been discovered. So he, he's responsible indirectly for all these various atrocities. And so we shouldn't honor Christopher Columbus. Instead, we should recognize Indigenous Peoples Day, which represents the, the true Native Americans. I guess... I just, whenever I hear these kind of discussions, I I just let out with a a heavy sigh as we sort of look at the revisionist history and stuff. Now, now to me, to me, I really don't care. If you want to have Columbus Day, and then you also want to have Christopher Columbus, because we feel it's politically correct, to also have Indigenous Peoples Day to balance this out. So for people that think that Christopher Columbus should be rewarded for discovering the new world and for people who think that, well, Christopher Columbus was awful, so we have to have Indigenous Peoples Day. To me, that that solves both problems. You have a a holiday for for everything. I'm not in favor of tearing down the statues of Christopher Columbus. I I think that's, um, as happens in some cities, I think that is an overreaction and that is wokeness and that is political correctness run amok, but that's okay. Don't, don't want to argue about it. You know, Indigenous Peoples Day, Christopher Columbus Day, whatever. Stock market is open. Lots of banks are closed. No mail. And um, a, a day off for some 
but not all government workers. So if you wonder why you didn't get mail, it's Indigenous Peoples Day. Again, an example of virtue signaling because nobody's life is any different, whether we call it Columbus Day or Indigenous Peoples Day. It's the ultimate example of virtue signaling, but we're all about that a lot around here. All right. One of the surprises over the last, I don't know, eight months or so has been the failure of the Russian army to accomplish its objectives in Ukraine. What was it? Sometime in February, Russia invades Ukraine. People were thinking it was going to be a three-day war, and Ukraine is going to be just destroyed. Instead of being destroyed, Ukraine has fought back. And the the Russian army has essentially, they are losing in Ukraine on, on the ground. Ground they took has been taken back by Ukraine. There are all sorts of protests in in Moscow and in, in Russia in general. Uh, Russia has had to call up, uh, what, 300,000 troops. And, and part of the problem Russia is having now is the same problem that the U.S. had in, in Vietnam in the latter stages. There, there's just there's not people. You you can draft more, but you don't have people that are ready to go in the field. That's exactly what Moscow is going on now. And you have Putin, who's just, uh, uh, you know, the, a dictator who is, I think, increasingly frustrated. Russia has been isolated in general on the world stage, with a couple exceptions, but in general, it's been isolated. You've got sanctions that are starting to impact the country, and it is becoming clearer and clearer to the Russian population that, number one, this is a war they should have never gotten involved in, and number two, it is a war that they are losing. So the question becomes, what does a dictator like Putin do faced with these realities? And we're, we're seeing what what's happened. Over the last day or two, you've seen Russia launch out with waves of strikes, missiles that they have launched into, not, not these aren't on the battlefield, these are in, in cities. I mean, here's the way the Washington Post reports it. Waves of Russian missiles slammed into Kiev and other Ukrainian cities on Monday in one of the broadest and most intense barrages of the war. Dozens of strikes and drones were meant to target civilian infrastructure, the country's electrical grid. There were civilian attacks. There was lots of civilian deaths as a result of this. Russia fired at least 83 missiles at Ukrainian cities. Um, 43 were intercepted. Nine drones were shot down. Um, But the the effect is that the, the civilian population was targeted. This is... This is very much like Hitler in World War II, where he realized he was losing on the battlefield. So the attempts were, let us cause as much civilian damage as we possibly can. Let's start bombing civilian centers in London. Let's start bombing civilian centers throughout Britain. Let's start killing as many as we possibly can of civilians with this idea that maybe we will convince Britain to capitulate. That's what the idea is. And you've got the the Ukrainian, the Russian winter that's coming on. And so Putin's idea now is I'm losing on the battlefield. So what I'm going to try to do is create, as I, I don't care if I kill civilians, and I'm going to start to try to destroy the infrastructure. So let, let's see if we can take electricity away from people so they'll be you know hurt, they'll be in the dark during the course of, of the winter. I mean, that's... That's what it has come to now. We're losing on the battlefield, so let's see how much stuff we can destroy. Let's see how many people we can kill. Let's see how much carnage we can create. Well, 
the world is appalled by this, as the world should be. But one of the things that's now being looked at is since this started, Ukraine has been trying to pressure the West to send more advanced air defense uh, and as a way of allowing Ukraine to take more control over, over the airspace. And this, given the fact that Putin has now decided to escalate the, the war to the extent that, again, you're not picking up ground, you're, you're trying to, again, take out infrastructure and kill civilians, one of them— so far, the West has been reluctant to provide the most advanced weapon systems, all right, because, again, they, they don't necessarily want to escalate this. But now that Putin has escalated it, uh, there, for example, uh, Zelensky, the Ukraine president, he, he's, he was apparently yesterday on the phone with the French president and the German chancellor saying, look, here, here's, here's the deal. What, what we need is, you know, we, we need more advanced anti-aircraft systems. We need more advanced anti-missile systems. We need to protect the sky over Ukraine because this is where Putin is now. And unless we get these, um, the, the civilian carnage is going to be even greater. Okay, our number, 855-616-1620. 855-616-1620. Okay, here is my question. Given the fact that Russia is losing the war, this appears to be an act of desperation to try to, again, not not take military targets out, but to destroy the infrastructure and to kill civilians in Ukraine, is it time to up the ante? And is it time to provide Ukraine with more advanced air defense systems to counter the latest step by Putin? 855-616-1620. We discuss. 855-616-1620. Here is the reality. Russia is losing its effort to try to take over Ukraine. And the Russia, Russian military has been, I think, largely exposed as, as a paper tiger. Um, people in Russia are starting to protest loudly and longly about an invasion that they wanted no part of and it should never have done in the first place. The sanctions are starting to hit Russia, and Vladimir Putin is getting more and more desperate. He's called up 300 conscripts, you know, people who are either drafted or reservists who are called up. They're not ready to go into the field. And and more importantly, people are, are now fleeing Russia to get out of this because, you know, nobody wants to be in January, you know, in, in Ukraine in a war that they should not be involved in. So in an effort to, again, very much like Hitler, like Hitler and if you're a regular listener to this program, I don't like Hitler analogies. You, you hear this, oh, this is like Nazi stuff, and there, there's almost nothing in the world that's like that when you, when you look at the magnitude of the Holocaust and things like that. So most times when I find these analogies, I think, no, I don't do it. What Putin is doing is very much like what Hitler did in World War II when you had the, the Blitz in London, where it was like, okay, I, I can't— I, I can't, we're, we're not in a position to invade, you know, Britain. And, you know, we, we've lost the Battle of Britain over the years. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to try to kill as many civilians as I possibly can. I'm going to send over the buzz bombs. That, that's, what, that's what Germany was all about during Hitler, is about now we're just going to try to destroy civilian infrastructure. We're going to try to kill as many people as we possibly can because maybe we can force some degree of capitulation. Well, all right, it didn't work with Hitler, and it shouldn't work with, with Putin. So now that Putin, facing a military debacle, 
facing pressure at home. His response is, okay, let's lob missiles into civilian sites. We'll see how many civilians we kill. We'll see how much infrastructure we can destroy because then maybe we can kill more. Just people will die during the, the upcoming winter. We cannot allow that to happen. It is in the interest of the free world that Putin loses. It is in the interest of the free world that Russians rebel and depose him. You cannot allow him to, I think, when, when you look at the monstrous atrocities that are going on, you can't allow him to just indiscriminately kill civilians. And the, the carnage that he's caused there for no reason at all is just appalling. So, yeah, I, I think this is the time as he escalates this. I, and I appreciate the fact that the West in general has been restrained. We have, and we collectively, I'm not just talking about the United States, but it's France, it's Germany, it's Great Britain. The West, NATO, has, I think, been moderate in its response. They have provided Ukraine with with assistance and help. They haven't put boots on the ground, nor do I think we should put boots on the ground. But they have provided the Ukrainians with wherewithal to help them fight, and they have done it. And they have done an admirable job, and you have the Russian army, which is being pushed back on all fronts. You, at least in my opinion— cannot allow Putin to circumvent his military losses by killing civilians. And if that means he is going to ratchet up his efforts by trying to kill civilians, then what we should do is we should ratchet up our response, again, by providing some of the more sophisticated, like anti-missile systems that we have. France is is where they're really asking for from them. And I, I think you should provide that, you know, to Ukraine in to give them the ability to defend their civilian population centers. Once we do that, I think it ratchets even more pressure on Vladimir Putin. And I understand the threat is, well, he's a maniac, but he's a maniac with, you know, nuclear weapons. And that is always that that's always a different concern. But the alternative is just to allow him to indiscriminately kill civilians. And I don't think that that is acceptable. I, I think it's in the United States interest that Russia continue to lose this war. Russia has been exposed as the aggressor that it it is. Um, Jeff, are you surprised that no one in Russia has taken uh, Putin out? Well, I, 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 I suspect that he's sleeping with one eye open, but I mean, I, I don't know what the exit ramp is for him, and that's a very realistic question. I mean, I don't know, I've never known all along how, how Putin is able to back off of this, but there's got to be some sort of, you know, exit strategy, and I don't think he knows what it is. Jeff, I cannot seem to fathom why the entire world continues to allow Putin to kill innocent civilians. Aren't we just as much fault for not doing anything about it? Well, we, we are doing things about it, and that's—so, I mean, I, I dis- disagree with that concept, but as Putin ratchets it up, I think we have to ratchet it, uh, our response up. Texter says, why is it so hard to just take the guy out and say, oops, I don't know who pulled the trigger? Well, that is the interesting question, and it, it is, you know, is the world a better place without him? And I think a lot of us are hoping that he either backs off or that he steps down because of health reasons or whatever, or that there is a, a coup. Jeff, um, we need to provide more advanced weaponry to Ukraine, especially now that we've seen the emaciated POWs returning from Russian camps. It looks like Auschwitz um, and the butchery left behind by the Russians in liberated towns. Yes, this is, I mean, you know, there is good and evil in the world. And this isn't an indictment. I'm not saying that all Russian people are evil, but the Russian government is, is evil. There's no question. Jeff, by all means, give Ukraine more advanced weapons. Putin is now resorting to kill, killing civilians, and he won't stop. Um, you know, he won't 
stop at all. No doubt about that. So, I mean, I think, you know, if Putin wants to escalate, I think our response needs to be measured, but it needs to be proportionate. And if that means providing Ukraine with more advanced weapon systems so they can shoot down more missiles and more drones that are going to bomb the cities, I say go for it. The Daryl Brooks trial, uh, week two is starting, and it's pretty much going uh, according to form. I mean, Daryl Brooks has been acting out a little bit less. He showed up today, kind of apologized for some of his antics. As I described at the beginning, whether he represented himself or not, this is what us former prosecutors would call kind of a slow guilty plea. I mean, the result is not in, in question at all. There were kind of some funny things today where um, he used to have dreadlocks, and he, and he cut his dreadlocks. You know, he's got short hair, and the one of the identifying witnesses, one of the police officers, said, yeah, that, that was you that was driving the car. And he said, well, didn't the person that was driving the car have, like, long hair? Yeah, but that that's still you. So I, I don't think that line of defense is getting too much traction. The judge is, I think, doing a very, very good job of keeping this on track, whether or not— At some point in time, the prosecution might just decide that even though we originally planned to go for like three or four weeks, we've got enough evidence and the the, the guilt is established. Because like I say, let's face it, this we all know how this is going to turn out. So it it might be I would not be surprised to see the prosecution rest not today or tomorrow. I'm not predicting that. But maybe unless there's large antics that delay the trial, I think you might see them rest sooner rather than later. Um, we'll see. Daryl Brooks trial week two. Back with more in just a couple minutes in the next hour of the program. We're going to talk about homeless in Milwaukee. We're going to talk a little bit about something that I saw in Las Vegas and a story that says a pox on the cashless society. All that and a lot more coming up in the two o'clock hour of the program. We'll be right back. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue. It's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. This is our third week. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. This is our third week in our new studios, and we're we're still getting stuff. And uh, just just during the break, our our great engineering staff came in, and I I now have this to pull back the curtain. I, I have... I now, again, have a call screen computer, so I can—what we've been doing for the last couple of weeks is my producer, Charlie, would say in my ear, okay, this is the name of the caller, and it's, you know, Nick, you know, in, in Milwaukee, and and then I have to do my thing. But now I've got the call screen computer, so I can see where people are calling from and get an idea on what you want to say. So it, we're, it's it's coming along. It's great. And if you do happen to be in downtown Milwaukee, like I say, we are located in— they call it the Avenue now. It's the former Grand Avenue property, and we have floor-to-ceiling windows, and people come by the food court or the food hall and kind of wander by. So if you're down in the area, stop off and say hello. All right. Here, here is the deal. You will remember a couple years ago there was a huge homeless population in the city of Milwaukee that was living under one of the freeway overpasses. And you can recall that. I mean, it was this this tent city that had had developed. And I, I by the way, I, I think we would all agree that that homelessness number one is a problem, but number two, living outdoors in these public areas is not a solution to, to this, and, and it's just not. And especially once the weather starts to get colder, I, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, you don't you don't belong under a freeway overpass. Plus, under freeway overpass. Plus, there's all sorts of problems that come with these these tent cities. Uh, and 
I'm trying not to generalize, but you know, a, a number of the people, at least a portion of the people who are homeless, there, there's mental health issues that are there. There's drug abuse issues that are there. There, there is a certain danger that is involved, you know, with with living in this sort of outdoor community with some people who are struggling with mental health issues, and not it's not all the people that are homeless, but some, and the drug abuse and those sorts of issues. It, it's dangerous. It's unsanitary. It's unhealthy. And it's something that should be discouraged. Well, you will recall, and Tom Barrett was the mayor at the time, the, the Dem- this is pre-COVID. The Democratic National Convention was going to come to Milwaukee in 2020. And in anticipation of the DNC coming here, the, the last thing, I, the image that the people that, that were running Milwaukee at the time, the last image that they wanted to put out was, was like a large homeless encampment in the heart of the city. So there was a conscious effort which was made to move people along. And actually, it was met with a, a great success. The, the idea was, look, okay, here, here's, the, here's the idea. What we have to do is we have to encourage people. We're, we're going to try to find them alternatives. We want to get people off the street because it, it's not a long-term solution. It's not even a good short-term solution to have people living in tents and sleeping in sleeping bags out, outside, especially in Wisconsin as the weather starts to get colder. But in general, I think anytime you could make that argument. So there was this constant effort that was made. Let's let's be aggressive about this. Let's let's start to enforce some of our various rules and regulations. Let's break up these tent cities. But at the same time, let's let's go out. Let's work with the people. Let's get them into places. And part of the problem as well is that some of the people, particularly some of the people that struggle with mental illness or whatever, they they resist this. They they, they fight the idea. They don't want to go into the shelters because the shelters have rules. You know, the rules are you have to be in by 10 o'clock at night. You can't drink. You can't do drugs, all those sorts of things. So it's, it is a struggle. I concede that. But we in Milwaukee, I think we're extremely successful with getting – getting homeless people off the the street, um, particularly in the downtown business improvement district area. And there's uh, the Milwaukee County Housing Division and other groups. It's all part of this thing they call Housing First, which focuses on getting permanent housing for homeless people so they can have enough stability. Because once you get the home, it it helps you maybe get services for drug and alcohol counseling, health care, maybe even employment. Okay, so that's the bottom line, and we all agree that it's noble. Well, the problem is right now, after the tent cities pretty much went away, you're starting to see more tent cities that are coming up. Um, matter of fact, there's been a, a big growth in the number of people who are like camping out in, in MacArthur Square, you know, putting the tents and things like that. And the issue is that you have some of these groups, there's some groups out there now which are, and the argument is, they, they call themselves street angels, and it's a local nonprofit, and they, they are well intended. Their, their mission is to provide clothes and food and sleeping bags and, and tents. For the homeless, all right? So that's that's what they do. You know, we want to help th- these people, but we want to provide them with clothes and food and sleeping bags and tents. Well, the problem is that there's a lot of people. So you've got the, the, the greater community that's trying to get people out of the tents and get them out of the sleeping bags. And the problem is that a lot of the people who are camping out 
are less inclined to take like housing vouchers and things like that and move off the streets when they're getting tents and sleeping bags and pillows and coolers and all these things that make it easier for them to stay on the street. And so the business district is saying, look, the unintended consequence, we, we understand these street angels, we, we get what they're trying to do. They're trying to make life a little bit better for these people that are homeless. But the unintended consequences are they're, they're actually encouraging them and they're enabling them to stay homeless. And what's happening is um, it's leading to you know fights among homeless people in these tent cities, more illegal drug use, sanitation issues, all these type of things. It's enabling. All right, our number is 855-616-1620. See, these street angels, I understand what they're trying to do. And right, they want to make people's lives a little bit better. But the concern is by giving people who are homeless tents and coolers and sleeping bags and other stuff to make it easier for them to stay on the street, you're really, aren't you, hurting them? Shouldn't the mission be you can't be in these tents? You know, and, and they're starting to see the number of these tents just kind of explode, for example, in MacArthur Square and some of these other places. Shouldn't the, the sole focus be, look, we're, we don't want you to stay on the street. We don't want to give you a tent. We don't want to give you a sleeping bag. Here, you know, we're, we want to give you a housing voucher. We want to get you off the street. We can't allow this to go back to where it was. And that is precisely what it looks like is happening. 855-616-1620 doesn't giving tents and clothing and sleeping bags to people who are homeless, doesn't that just enable them? And isn't isn't this the wrong way to go about it? Because it sure looks like you've got two competing efforts here. You've got the larger business community that is trying to do everything it can to get people off the streets, and then you've got, you know, one of these Good Samaritan type of organizations, which is essentially, in reality, working against them by enabling people to stay on the streets. 855-616-1620. What do you think? Eight five five six one six one six twenty. All right. The, the question is: Does this enable it? If you're just tuning in, the, the number of people that are living in like the, these homeless encampments here in Milwaukee, it started to increase. It was, it was there was almost nothing, and now it is starting to increase. People are in tents. People are in sleeping bags. Part of the problem is that you have a group called Street Angels, and these, these are well-intentioned people. I, I get it. And, you know, they look and they say, hey, you know, we've got people that are homeless. Let, let's give them tents. Let's give them sleeping bags. Well, the, the larger community in the city is saying, look, this is, this is a self-defeating purpose because if you give people tents, if you give them sleeping bags, you will encourage them to turn down housing vouchers or whatever. You're just enabling them to stay outside, and that's unsuitable. It's, it's not sanitary. It's not safe. It's just a bad situation, and it's getting worse. So what they're saying is we're not helping people. We need to just reverse this. We need to stop giving people sleeping bags. We need to stop giving people tents. We need to just do everything we can to get them off the streets. Let's start with Brad in Madison. Brad, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Hi, Brad. I, uh, we have that problem in Madison. However, the... Uh, Solution seems to be here to build some mini houses and let the uh, people move into those. Mm-hmm. And if they don't, they're just going to let them die out on the street. 
So I don't know the uh, answer besides that, but the mini houses seem like a good choice for those who want to stay alive in the winter. Yeah, I mean, no, th- thanks. So, I mean, and there's all sorts of different al- alternatives. You know, one of our texters says maybe what they should be doing is like donating the sleeping bags to the shelters and stuff to encourage people to get inside. It enabling people, making it easier for people to stay outside is not. It's just not a successful strategy. It's not a winning strategy. And I understand it comes from a good place. Look, I, I get it. I, I, I'm not saying this is a bad people. These are bad people. But, you know, the, the, the emphasis shouldn't be on making it easier for people to put tents in MacArthur Square or, you know, curl up in their sleeping bags under some freeway overpass. That, that is not a long-term workable solution. And we see when you're giving out tents and you're giving out these sleeping bags, that is precisely what it encourages people to end up doing. And then you have all the different problems. And yes, it creates a problem for the business district, but it creates a problem for the homeless people as well. And and we were really, I think, getting a handle on this when you saw the effort made to, hey, we're going to start enforcing the laws and you know, we're, we're going to clean out the, these homeless encampments. You saw Essentially, not the problem of homelessness going away, but you you saw people you know getting into the shelters and doing that sort of stuff. You know now as the weather's getting colder, we're apparently going the other way. Let's talk to Mike on the northwest side. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hi, good afternoon, Jeff. Hi, Mike. Um, my my solution is really not a solution. It's just a, a an uh, advisory or something like that. Uh, you're going to have the uh, homeless people that do want the housing and that they're going to go for that. Then you have the hardcore people that are mentally uh, disabled and drug drug users and whatever that will stay on the streets for whatever uh, to clean up the downtown area and everything else. Have like a tent city district and move all these people to like like Northridge. <laughs> like Northridge. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, seriously, we're, you're not going to no. cure some of these people and just keep them alive over there. Well, I mean, th- the problem is thanks for. Oops, I'm sorry. The the problem, Mike, is that you. you thanks for calling. You you can't. You you cannot have people living you cannot have people living outside Northridge or wherever in tents in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in January. It it is not a humane alternative. You have to force people inside. And to your point, you're you're right. Some of the people just, just don't want to go. And as long as you give them alternatives, okay, well here's your tent, here's your sleeping bag, that's the option that they are going to continue to take. And it, it's just not a sustainable sort of, of situation. Plus you you know the, the idea of creating these tent cities and stuff, it it's not safe, it's not sanitary, and it it's a underlying problem. I was trying to think when we were um Okay, on our the, the cruise we took, it, it docked in uh, Vancouver, which is just a, a beautiful city. But Vancouver, just like Seattle, just like Portland, has a huge problem with homelessness. I mean, enormous amounts of homelessness. And as we were driving through the on on the way to the airport, as we were driving through the city, you you would see the, these giant tent cities, and, and that's how they were addressing it. And I was I remember talking to the driver, and he said it, it's just it, it's an ongoing nightmare because they're, they're not sanitary. There's not the, there's not place to take showers. There's you can put a couple porta potties in, but that's a problem. A lot of the people that are there, to your point, Mike, have drug problems, or they have alcohol problems, or there's mental illness problems, and so there's this degree of violence that that occurs at these places. It's just not a sustainable option and I, anything that we do to enable this um to enable it I, I think is is just you know wrong um 
<clears throat> Jeff, I think those who are homeless who want to live in tents will stay no matter what accommodations you offer them. Well, I, I, that, 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 well, that wasn't the case. I mean, the, you know, after they made the decision to clear out some of the tent cities a couple of years ago in advance of the Democratic National Convention, they, they were successful. They, they, they were successful. They said, look, we're, we're taking the stuff. We're not going to allow you to pitch tents. We're not going to allow you just to, you know, keep your possessions in a shopping cart. We're not going to allow you to live under a freeway overpass. And so they, they gave people notice. They came around with the housing vouchers. They, they made a point of this, and it's, it, it, they were able to get rid of it. And they've been able to pretty much keep it gone for the last two years, but now it, it's coming back, and it's, it's hurting people. Let's talk to Dave in Wauwatosa. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. You I know did. this is this is a tough this is a tough one because you know we always want to help people. People in need, you want to help. So we were out of state recently. We were over in Ithaca, New York, and it was surprising the number of young homeless people in downtown Ithaca. And it's right when it starts to get late in the day, early evening. All of a sudden, these you know like drugged out creatures are just hanging around downtown panhandling passing out on park benches and stuff and so i went online and checked out um, like we're gonna get to what's that. first dolly Parton. yeah um yeah. so i love her yeah, yeah. we're getting a know, we're getting a feed so, across so what is the connection okay there we go okay oh, no I, I have no, no I, I, I was hearing that too Anthology. okay don't what charlie whatever button that I is did. don't turn that button up <laughs> <laughs> Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I went online and just entered, you know, homeless population of Ithaca, New York, and it turns out that they have a lot of services there. The county, you know, creates or enables, you know, this increasing population. So I don't know what the answer is. I mean, you want to help people, right? but when you enable it, it creates a bigger problem, and, it, and it's got to hurt businesses and everything else, you know, that create taxes and, and help the overall society uh, you know so right yeah and also i was in la i was in la a couple of years ago and it's unbelievable the tent cities all across la i, I mean every available lot has tents in them it's just strange and it reeks a pot the whole time well yeah and well i was stunned i mean thanks to call I, I mean i was stunned by by vancouver i mean and, and again i i understand that that there i mean it's the climate and it's, so you have vancouver and you have portland and you have seattle but it was i was just overwhelmed by this but this it is not a long term sustainable thing, and you know whatever because the climate's more moderate in Vancouver or in Seattle or in Portland than it is here. You just you you can't have you can't have people just deciding that they're going to squat in public parks or you know under freeway overpasses. You cannot allow that to happen. And to the extent that you have these these do gooder groups, and I don't say that in a disparaging way, that are, are making it easier for them to squat. They they got to stop. They, they they just they just do because all they are really doing is enabling people to engage in destructive behavior. You got to get people off the streets. Period. Can I see a show of hands? Does everybody know that that song? All right. My producer, Charlie, has his hand raised. That is, of course, Brown Eyed Girl by Van Morrison. All right. Now, all right. It actually happens to be one of my very favorite songs, and it's it, it's um, 
Jimmy Buffett does a cover for that, and it's it's one of the songs that actually. If you go to a Jimmy Buffett concert, they call them like like riot songs, and and what they say is that if they don't play certain songs, they, they know that there's going to be a riot among the crowd. I mean, you you go to, for example, if you go to a Jimmy Buffett concert, you expect to hear Margaritaville and Pirate Looks at Forty and um, Cheeseburger in Paradise and Volcano and Fins. I mean, there, there's a handful of songs, and they they sprinkle in in a concert that's got maybe twenty four, twenty five songs. You know, they'll, they'll sprinkle in. Maybe some of the newer stuff or maybe some of the less played stuff. But you know that you're going to get about 15 of those songs, and, and that's what the expectation is. And that's, candidly, when you go to see most performers that have been around for a while, there, there's you expect to hear them play the hits. I mean, that's what you're you're paying to, to see, right? I, I saw Rod Stewart at Summerfest. Rod Stewart's got a great songbook, and, and you know, look, his voice isn't what it was before, but he, he played his hits. And then he played some other stuff as well. So why are we talking about the story? So last weekend, I'm in Las Vegas, and as I had said before, I'd gone to see, one of the reasons we were going that weekend was we were going to originally see a Jimmy Buffett concert. He was playing at the MGM, and he had some health-related issues, so he canceled his tour. Well, we decided we're going to go to Vegas anyways. So um, as I we're flying out there, matter of fact, I ran into, at the airport on Thursday, I ran into an old friend of mine from WTMJ Capital Drive days who used to be the, the building manager. He, he was going he was going out to Vegas. I said, oh, that's cool. What are you going to go see? And he said, well, he's a big fan of, of Van Morrison, the, the Irish blues guy. He said, I'm a big fan of Van Morrison and Van Morrison's concerts. He had concerts that were scheduled for last year and they took him off because of COVID or, or whatever. He, he's playing at Caesars Palace Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. And so, huh. Okay, well, we we you know our, our Buffett thing got canceled and stuff. So I, you know, was talking to my my brother and my brother in law and my sister in law, and we, we we said, hey, Van Morrison, I, that that might be a good concert. I, I saw Van Morrison like forty years ago. I'm like, okay, that, that this this might be cool. Now I understand that Van Morrison is noticeably notably cranky and, and grumpy and stuff. But I mean, to, to give you an idea, I mean, you you would probably know a lot of, even if you're not a fan of Van Morrison you would recognize a lot of the songs Brown Eyed Girl Into the Mystic um, Moondance um, Baby Please Don't Go and It's Stone Me Bright Side of the Road Glad Tidings I mean he's got he's just got a, a great songbook It's All Over Now Baby Blue Domino is probably one of his favorite one of the ones that you would next know Blue Money he did that I mean so Wild Night I mean there's just there, there's a long list of, of songs over an extensive career. All right. So we, we get the tickets. It was at Caesars, and we go in with a bunch. And these, these were not inexpensive tickets, but, you know, what what the heck. So, you know, we go. Van Morrison comes out, and he, he's got he's got a great band. It's this nine-piece band, and, you know, he's— uh, he performs the show, and it's about an hour and 15 minutes long, and then he kind of like walks off the stage, and the band plays for a couple minutes, and there's no encore. It just kind of ends. But what happened is he played almost none of his hits. I mean, it's just the songs he played, with one or two minor exceptions, were almost unrecognizable. He didn't play Gloria. He didn't play Brown Eyed Girl. He didn't play Into the Mystic. He did not play Baby Please Don't Go. These are the days. He didn't Bright Side of the Road, Glad Tidings, all those things. All the songs that the hardcore fans who paid stupid money to see the show kind of expected. You didn't hear any of that. It it was all, okay, basically this is either obscure stuff or with one or two minor exceptions. This is stuff off of my new album or, or whatever. And so then there's really no encore. The show just ends. And all these people 
who are walking out of of the forum at Caesars, and everybody's just kind of shaking their head, going, "What? What just? What just happened? <laughs> you know, really? I mean, what? What? What happened? Where? You know, where? Where is this? And and so you turn out this this fan base who's again spent a, a lot of money, who's now. I think it would be fair to say that everyone walked out of there disappointed and not disappointed in that, you know, that the, the music didn't sound great and all, but disappointed that, that he didn't, it, it not only did he not play some of the hits, he pretty much didn't play any of, of the hits, which to me was kind of this, well, I mean, I, I guess you pay your money and take your chances, but I'm thinking, you know, there's a certain degree of arrogance because you know that people are coming to, to hear the hits, and I think there's a certain degree of expectations. And to me, it's kind of like a, well, you know, sort of a screw you fans if you decide that you don't want to do that. All right, 855-616-1620. Let's discuss this. When you go to you know, see a performer that's been around, we're not talking about a new band, but, you know, when you go to see a, a performer is it fair to have an expectation that they're going to, if they've got greatest hits, that they're going to play at least some of those greatest hits? And is it fair to be disappointed if if they don't? 855-616-1620. Because I will tell you, I mean, it was a good show, but everybody walking out of this place, talking about a couple thousand people, just sort of shaking their heads going, what what was that? And, and where was Brown Eyed Girl? And where was Into the Mystic? And where was Moondance? And I think people felt disappointed in the extreme. And I'm not arguing that you should make it a greatest hit show if you've got other stuff that you want to do. But don't you have an obligation or shouldn't you have an obligation to the fans to play at least some of the things that they came to hear you play? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. don't mean to, well, I do mean to be critical. So I, I go to this Van Morrison concert, paid a lot of money for the tickets on Friday in Las Vegas, kind of on a whim. And I, I, I'm a huge Van Morrison fan. I was expecting to, I mean, I, look, I understood there's going to be some new stuff and all. I was but ex- expecting to hear at least some of the greatest hits, and he played almost none. And I, it wasn't just me. Everybody walks out of the, the show, and everybody's kind of like shaking their head saying, you could have at least, I don't know, come back from an encore and played Brown Eyed Girl and Glory or whatever. But it was like... I thought it was just self-indulgent, and I thought it was a way of kind of saying, screw you to the fans. And I understand, you know, artists get to do what they want to do, but if the, the reason people are spending stupid money to come see you as a performer is because I think they want to hear you play some of the hits. I mean, don't they? Let's start with uh, Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. I agree. I expect a balance between uh, greatest hits type stuff and like new stuff. Um, if it was all greatest hits, I would feel like I would be sure. seeing the same show over and over again. Um, but if it's but you do want that the uh, stuff people know and a good band, I think, did a really good job of that recently was the psychedelic furs when I saw them when they were in Wisconsin just um, in July, because they would play new stuff, but then they would, yeah. they would kind of go back and forth between new and classics. And then it was funny because later on in the show, they played something new again. And then all of a sudden after the song ended, Richard Butler, the lead singer goes, okay, enough new stuff. And then right. <laughs> come back from the bathroom. The yeah. just like mainstream ones. Yeah. No, that, that, and that's, and look, and I mean, I, I, and I, I, by the way, I understand that maybe performers get, 
I'm sure Jimmy Buffett gets tired of playing Margaritaville at every show, but that's what, I mean, fans go to a Jimmy Buffett show. They want to hear Jimmy Buffett play Margaritaville, and people go away disappointed. And I, I left extremely disappointed, and I will tell you, I don't, I, I, I mean, not that Van Morrison needs my money, but I don't think I'd go back uh, again. Mark in Central Florida. Mark, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff, uh, thanks for taking my phone sure. call. Um, I'm a long-time Wisconsin resident, and back in the middle 90s, um, they had a concert in the Milwaukee Bucks Stadium, and I can't remember the name of it. But Crosby, Stills, and Nash were playing there, and my girlfriend and I at the time paid big bucks. Right. And the Crosby, Stills, and Nash, as you know, has probably had a, how many? Half a dozen, eight number one hits or sure. so. And they didn't play one of them in an hour and a half. And they went into their latest album, and at one time, I believe it was David Crosby, played some kind of funky bass guitar solo, and he actually got booed. Oh. I just yeah, because people couldn't believe that from yeah a major group like that. Yeah, no, th- thanks because people wanted to hear the hits. Now, a couple people are texting and saying we should check the set list. Well, well, I. I I guess, first of all, it didn't occur to me that he wasn't going to play the, the big hits. But then I, I am. I pull out my phone in the middle of the concert, and I'm kind of looking at some of the past set lists. And I see, at least on some of them, he came back for an encore, and he played Glory and Brown-Eyed Girl. And uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. I mean, I saw Rod Stewart in Las Vegas a couple years ago, and, and his voice was shot. He, he was he, he did a better show at Summerfest this summer. But at least— I mean, it was where he closed the show with Maggie May. Okay, I thought it was a disappointing concert, but I got to see Rod Stewart perform Maggie May in person, one of the greatest rock and roll songs of all time. So I, I walked away thinking, oh, it wasn't the best concert, but you know, I got to see him perform that show. Um, yeah, Jeff, I had a friend recently go see Eric Clapton in Chicago. She paid a good deal of money, and he didn't play many of his hits. Additionally, he didn't say barely anything to the crowd. Well, that's Van Morrison, too. Um, yes, needless to say, she was extremely disappointed. Jeff, I think set lists should be checked regarding tours. Well, like I say, I I did even check the set list, and at least on some of them, he'd come back for an encore and he'd play some of the songs. This one, no. Jeff, I hate it when bands do this. I also hate when bands cancel at the last minute. Um, I won tickets to see Panic at the Disco, and the lead singer canceled the concert 30 minutes before they went on. Yeah, that would be, um, tough. Jeff, I saw Elton John back in the late 1980s at the Marcus Amphitheater, and he was struggling with his keyboard and hardly played any of his hits. It was the worst concert I'd seen. I I just won't go back and see him again. Jeff, this happened to me twice. A cheap trick, ironically, your lead in music. At Summerfest a long time ago, I can still hear the booze. And Neil Young, 20 years ago, um, on his album tour for his LP, Greendale, and that's all he did was the album. It was... It was awful. Um, well, it was just it was just disappointing. Jeff, I saw Bowie and Dylan in the early '80s, and the same thing happened. Was very disappointed. Um, I, I mean, I saw Dylan at Summerfest, and some of you were probably there as well. And it's one of the worst concerts I've ever seen because it was the same thing. He didn't play any of his his hits, and I thought that was just. I thought it was so self-indulgent to do this. Jeff, my husband and I once went to see Prince, paid a pretty hefty sum of money. Apparently at the time, um, he was in a contract dispute with his label maker, so he could not play the full song list of his hits. We just got snippets. It was disappointing, to say the least. I feel longtime artists do owe it to their fans to play their hits, especially when they are charging an arm and a leg. Um, yeah, I think there's an element of that. Let's talk to Dan in Illinois. Dan, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, how you doing? Good. What do you think? 
Hey, anyhow, my wife used to sell uh, advertisements for a big company. I won't mention her name. So every year we got to pick out a concert, and every year I get the Packers-Bears game. That's a different time <laughs> for a different story. But uh, we seen Bob Seeger one time, and it was fantastic. So she came home and she goes, we're going to see Bruce Springsteen, and I'm all excited. I'm not a big Bruce Springsteen stand, our fan. We go down there. He comes out, and I kid you not, he sits on a chair, and he's playing. The East Street Band's not even there, yeah. and he's playing a guitar and singing these songs. We left halfway through. I was just like, yeah. what did we just well, yeah, th- thanks to call. I mean, I guess, see, it's one thing if it's billed like that, but this, this wasn't this. Here's a text, Jeff. I was at a Bruce Springsteen concert at the Bradley Center years ago. He did the same thing, played all the songs off his new album, didn't know any of them, was disappointed. And again, I, I, um, you know, um, I, I just, it's just, I, I think it's, it's disappointing when when you have that, and I from the person again, like Van Morrison, he's seventy seven years old. He's cranky. He he doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't, you know, care about that. But I'm thinking, you know, don't you, you know, don't you have some obligation to your, you know, fans, Jeff? I, absolutely, I've seen Elton John multiple times, and while he does do some of the newer stuff, the majority of the music is his greatest hits. Same thing with Billy Joel and Paul McCartney. Yeah, well, I mean, right? I, I saw McCartney at Lambeau Field a couple years ago. It was a great concert, and and he played some of the newer stuff. But you know, he he played a lot of the hits because you know you go to see a Paul McCartney concert, and you know you're going to be disappointed if if you don't hear you know some of the big Beatles tunes and and things like that. And you would have been, and you pay a lot of money to see this. Um, I just think that um, that that's. One of the issues, Jeff, when going to live concerts, we as the fans want to hear those songs. It's like comfort food often conjuring up happy memories. Yeah, it was. And and again, Van Morrison probably doesn't care, but the people walking out of Caesars on Friday night, I think we were all kind of collectively shaking our heads. And somebody came up to me and said, how was the concert? I got tickets for tomorrow night. And I said, well, just be, be prepared. You're not going to hear any of the hits. And they said, I flew all the way from wherever to, to hear the hits. And I said, well, it ain't going to happen.